Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. And hello, welcome back to our conference coverage of HFES 2022. Uh, I am sitting here with Christy Harper. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. And it's so nice to be here in person <laughs> instead of remotely. Exactly. I know. I think the last time we connected uh, on the show was uh, for UXPA, right? Yes. Yeah. That was last year too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been a minute. Or well, the year before even, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. It was, it's been a minute. Well, welcome back. We're glad to have you here uh, today. Um, you know what? Maybe let's just take a minute back because I don't even know if we've even talked about who you are on the show. Can we do oh, that okay. for a second? We can do that. Who are you and, and what is your sort of area of expertise? Okay. So I'm Christy Harper. I own a consulting company with my business partner called End-to-End User Research. We primarily focus on UX research for tech companies, but we also do a little bit of human factors testing of medical products. We have facilities that we rent out, which are usability labs, focus group rooms, and even mock jury spaces. We don't do that kind of research, but we do rent the space. And we also do participant recruiting along with that. And we have a really great remote team that does all of our uh, recruiting for us. And um, so it's been very exciting five years. Prior to that, I uh, managed a small research team in the product design group at HP. So I did that for many years um, before opening end to end. And we've grown from two to 27 people, I think, wow. right now. So lots of people. It's been, a, <laughs> it's been a good journey for this five years. One of them actually in our lab too, Rashad. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Rashad. <laughs> That's exciting. Yes, he's great. Yes, he is. No, it's great to have you here, Christy, and thank you very much for giving up the time um, to come and chat to us. We recognize one of the things that we've heard a lot from people who've spoken to us today is just it's great to be networking again. It's great to be talking to people, and I think that's where probably where the, the real value is in what's going on. Um, but what has brought you to HFES this year? What's been your driving force about coming to this event this year? So there's a, there's a few things. So I am the current chairperson of the HFE Women Group, which is the women's organization for mentoring and networking. And we have an awards ceremony and a happy hour this evening from five o'clock till six, really literally an hour. Um, so we're competing with lots of other uh, happy hour events. So ours is a little bit earlier. And we're going to award the... Um, Mentor of the Year, the Woman of the Year, and the Rising Star Award. So that's always very exciting. Of course, men are welcome to join and come support the women um, who are winning these awards this evening. And the other thing that brings me is I am in charge of the local chapter presidents. So I just hosted the lunch for the chapter presidents. Um, So we've been trying to help revitalize a lot of the local chapters and hook them up with student chapters and help um, the organization stays strong. So that's been my focus so far. Are, are you presenting anything here? Yes, I'm on two panels. So I mentioned the HFE Women Group. So as part of that, I'm the part of the Council of Affinity Groups. And so we are going to have a panel talking about on Thursday, talking about bringing your whole self to work which I think is something that's very important. So we're going to hear from all of the different affinity group leaders on that panel. Additionally, I'm on an industry panel, and that one also on Thursday, but early in the morning, 8 o'clock. I'm not a morning person, but I'm going to (laughs) rally and make it. But we're going to talk about, so you want to be a manager. And so a lot of that is, you know, when you get into research and you're researching for a while, and then you wonder, what is your next step? Um, should I go into management? Should I expand my skills? Should I contribute more on a technical level? So I think all of those paths are valid. And some of us became managers sort of fell into it. Some of us were trained for it. So we want to share those experiences. And then we also have Amrita from Dell. She's going to be part of the panel and she's going to share the opposing viewpoint of Mm. staying on the technical track and not becoming a manager. Yeah. It's a good, good perspective to have. (laughs) There's, um, There's so many questions I want to ask now. Um, (laughs) Just take a a quick step back. Um, You mentioned about the affinity groups and the fact that um, you're going to be sitting on this panel. How important, we've heard from a couple of the other affinity groups as well, how important are affinity groups to the work that HFES does? Oh, I think it's very important. I think, like, like in many different ways, I think, like any organization, you want to be inclusive and you want to make sure that people feel at home. 
um, in their own organization. So having the affinity groups, I think, really helps people to connect in that way. And it also raises awareness, like we have um, a disability and so we need to think about how do we account for people with disabilities when they come to an event like the conference. So I think in terms of awareness, uh, in general, it's very important as well. So we talked to Rose earlier about the disability group, and and it's one of those things where I didn't, I mean, I have one, I don't think about it. Um, and, and so it's like, how do you sort of encourage people, not just with that affinity group, but any affinity group to sort of feel like somebody is a part of that thing or can be a part of that thing very easily, right? Like, the, how do you make the accessibility of, of affinity groups accessible, right? That's, that's, to me, that's a question that I have. Yeah. So how do people know about them or how do they join them? Both. Or? Well, I mean, like, how do you, yeah, how do you help members be aware of them and how do you, um, how do you make it easy to join them? That type of thing, right? Yeah. So I think a lot of that is happening um, here you know, we're having, like I said, lots of competing happy hours. And I think <laughs> I think part of that is just to get, let people know, hey, this group is out here. And if you're interested in this group, come over and, and meet some other people and check it out. Um, most of them are super easy to join. Most of us have LinkedIn groups and we have, you know, social media channels. And, you know, you can join the old fashioned way on the email list, you know. So and what I've done with the HFE Woman group is made it um, we also have the LinkedIn group, which we have expanded to include lots of people who are maybe outside of HFES, but are also in maybe UX research or some other related field, but like the idea of HFE Woman. And, you know, they're able to attend all of our virtual events and also feel part of the community. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of jealous about just how many happy hours are going on and the fact that I can't <laughs> any of them over here in the UK. Um, but I, I won't hold that against you. It's fine. Um, you, you're going to be talking about in, in, that, in that one group uh, panel discussion around bringing, the idea of bringing yourself to work. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I think a lot of times people um, in the past have had this work persona and their home persona. And, and I kind of get that to a certain extent, maybe you don't want to share all of your personal information with everybody. Of course, people are entitled to privacy, but also they shouldn't feel like they're not allowed to be themselves. So, um, you know, you should be able to be who you are, or you should be able to wear your hair however you'd like to wear your hair. You should be able to dress, uh, you know, obviously you have to wear clothes, but you know, you should be able to dress the way you dress, right? And you shouldn't feel bad about wearing a head covering, for example. Right. Like, you should be yourself and you should be able to bring yourself to work. Right. Barry, I'm giving you full permission right now to come to the podcast without pants on because we don't see you without. Well, I was, I was standing up earlier just to try and stretch my legs. And I was a bit concerned for a moment. Oh, so okay. No, we were not live. Don't worry. Don't worry. Oh, that's fine. That's I mean, good. Okay. It was a commercial break. <laughs> so, so Christy, you're part of a panel on, on Thursday here talking about taking that step into management, right? Um, do you think that management is sort of necessary for career advancement, in your opinion? So I don't think it's necessary. I think it's one path. So I've talked to other people who are doing research who say, you know what, I, I kind of like the design side of it, or I want to become a research scientist, like go in a different, more academic direction. Or I've heard from people that I want to be a product manager because I feel like product managers don't know enough about human factors research and they really should understand research more when they're making big product design decisions. Um, and so people management is another track. So it is a viable track if that's the way you want to go, but it doesn't work in every organization. Not every organization has sort of a progression for human factors or even if you're in a combined research and design team, it might end at the director level. So if you're looking to move up, you need to be in a company that has representation, you know, all the way up. Right. So, I mean, one of the ways to go down this, and I think from what you said that your panel is going to go down that, you know, should you be a manager, should you not be a manager, go down the technical route. To flip that on its head, do you think being a human factors practitioner brings something special to being a manager? Does it make you better, worse? Um, do, do you think do you think it brings you any special source, as it were, to being a manager? I, I think it helped me when I was managing a team, and I think what helped me was having natural empathy. I know that word is sometimes overused, but I think I'm good at listening, and I'm good at 
you know, being empathetic to people and being understanding of their challenges. And I think that's something important. Mentoring is something that's always been really um, personally important to me. And I think good managers should provide some mentorship. Not all of them do, but I think that was something um, that came also from being a researcher, right? Researchers in general are curious about people. We listen to people. We're empathetic, you know. So I think there are a lot of those skills that carry over to management. And I think, you know, they definitely helped me. Right. Do you feel that there are some domains or industries where that path to uh, a manager position from a human factors perspective is maybe uh, more impactful than others? So I'm not really sure. I mean, what we're going to do on the panel is each of us are going to talk about our own experiences and how we got there and what that meant for us in terms of our companies. Right. So I can really only speak to that. It's really right. hard for me to imagine <laughs> <laughs> what it's like. And, and, you know, really HP changed a lot. I worked for Compaq and then I worked for HP through many, um, you know, mergers, acquisitions and changes and uh, different bosses and different structures and organizations. But still, I was primarily at one company. So, you know, I realized that my viewpoint is limited and which is why I'm on a panel. Right. <laughs> That, that, that's that's a rebuke for us wanting the answers from the panel before the panel's actually <laughs> ah you got me uh, um you mentioned earlier you, you're the local chapters chair with the nature for years um certainly that's something i'm unfamiliar with so could you give us a brief rundown what that role is and what you know what's it about mm -hmm. what, is it, what, what does it aim to do okay so the you know you're familiar with obviously the national international human factors group so there's also local chapters and so um, and there's also student chapters. So obviously student chapters come from universities and it's a way for students to become involved, to present, to win awards, uh, to win, you know, best papers and all this, you know, it, it's, you don't have to be in a student chapter to do any of that. But I think having a student chapter just gives you a lot of experience for leadership, um, for networking, all kinds of things like that. But the local chapters on the other side are for primarily for industry, but for us, at least in Houston, it's been sort of a way for industry to become involved with students. And um, so there are local chapters all over the U.S. and some internationally. And then some, because of COVID and other factors, a lot of these local chapters have been sort of um, just stagnant or dormant for a while, and they're not sure how to get it started up again. And the people who had so much energy prior to COVID are now tired. And and so what I'm trying to do in this role is I'm trying to connect people um, and find either strong chapters nearby that they can partner with, um, find uh, universities that they can work with, and just try to help them if there's interest in getting a local chapter revitalized, try to share some of the best practices um, that we learned in Houston. And we just had the lunch. So at that, we had people from multiple chapters share things that have worked for them and concerns that they had. And so that, that was, I think, a very fruitful lunch. And I was very happy. I was very, like, emphatically pushing people to get somebody <laughs> there. And it's like, the president's not coming, send somebody else. Oh, well, nobody from the officers are coming, send somebody from the chapter. You know, there's no chapter, send somebody from the state. I don't care, just get somebody right. there. And, you know, because of that, you know, we had a nice full table and, you know, not every chapter was represented, but we did get a lot of great feedback. You know, this is this is uh, me probably wildly speculating, and I probably shouldn't. But uh, you know, we talked to Susan earlier about some of the some of the changes that HFES is going to make over the next couple of years. Do you think that maybe a distributed approach of sort of bringing a, a, a bigger emphasis on the local communities, um, but within the strength of a larger community, is is a is a good approach to take? I think it's good because it spreads awareness. I think a lot of times people don't even know that the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society exists. And I think a local chapter is one way to do that. And in our local chapter, we have reached out to UXPA or Hexagon Houston or um, IXDA and, and you know shared some of their events and they'll share some of our events that are relevant. So I think people may not have ever heard of HFES and then USPA says, Hey, you know, they're having this speaker come that's relevant to our organization. And so it just helps, I think on the local level, it, it's another way to help share what's going on in HFES. But we did talk about, 
you know, some people are very isolated. They're in very small areas or right. conversely, they're in a very large area and people don't want to drive um, an hour right. know, across traffic to get to an in-person event. So we've talked about doing hybrid events. We talked about maybe even teaming up and doing regional events to help some of the um, less strong chapters. Yeah. So you've only had like sort of a day of the conference so far. Um, obviously, so you had some nice, um, nice e event last night as well, which I'm also not jealous about. And we won't talk about. Um, <laughs> what have you got out of it so far? What's been the biggest? Um, what's been the biggest win for you so far that you've got out of the conference? I don't know. Just well, obviously, seeing everyone again um, is a huge win, right? Just being able. There's something about the energy of the conference that's hard to describe. Um, I know making you jealous again. We're gonna have to get you here. <laughs> it's so great over here, right? It's just the energy. There's like everybody's so, looking at all their happy faces, just beaming, excited to be here. Yeah, and just you know, right now it's like new people are coming in and you're meeting with people and, and, you know, there's a constancy of new faces, which is always exciting, you know, and then there's people, you know, what do we do and how do we make sure we keep our organization strong? And so I'm just hearing about this from different people that I've been running into over the past, what, day and a half, you know, just sort of finding out what's happening. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of energy and it's very exciting. That's awesome. So, so, there's a whole week ahead of us. So it's day one. Uh, what are you most looking forward to this week? I Well, honestly, I haven't looked at the program much because I've been meeting, meeting, meeting. <laughs> Me too. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm sure there are things I will be looking forward to. Uh, today is my busiest day, you know, but then I think tomorrow I'll be able to actually attend some sessions and yeah. figure out what to do there. Um, and then I just have a lot of meetings planned and networking and lunches and happy hours and such. But I, I am looking forward to our panels because even on my own panel, getting to see those people I haven't seen right. in a long time is, is, you know, that's selfishly exciting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So just to take um, a quick step back from the conference, because quite frankly, I'm bored of you now. What a great time you guys were all having. Oh, Barry, yeah. Barry, calm down. I know. Just <laughs> jealous. Um, but to get back to your, your your human factors roots, as it were, what how did you actually get into human factors in the first place? What was the uh, what was the driving force behind you finding out about human factors and getting into it? So I didn't come through the, the traditional path. You know, when I went to school, I didn't even know there was such a thing as human factors. So I, I think it's always very exciting to explain to people who we are and what we do. But you know, I had a master's degree in psychology. I was working, um, doing training for the government, and I was working through the post office, which is just a very dysfunctional organization with lots of system issues. But um, I discovered it because I was basically trying to figure out what to do next and um, how to change uh, my career trajectory without going back to school. And somebody told me about human factors. And so I started reading about it. And I just read a couple of textbooks. I started following what we used to call listservs and you know, <laughs> meeting different people. And then I just basically networked and found out that it, to, be, to break in brand new, even if you had a master's degree in psychology, you needed some experience and you had to get that somewhere. And um, the smaller organizations did not have the bandwidth to train somebody who was very new. And so I reached out to Mira Manahan at Compaq and she was great. She just talked to me and listened to me and brought me in for interviews. Um, the first time I didn't get it, get the position, but then later she contacted me again and offered me a contract position at Compaq. And then a few months later, she offered me a full-time position and I never looked back. And, you know, I'll always appreciate her. And because of her, I'm always trying to give back. I'm always, you know, I, at HP, I always had interns. Uh, more than I could hire. And I do the same thing with my business partner, Monica Snydman. We do the same thing at end to end. We always have more interns than we can hire because we feel like them getting the practical experience is going to help them get good jobs. And we've been very successful. You know, people who've worked for us who, you know, we haven't been able to keep have gone on to have great jobs, both from HP and from end to end. So, right. Well, hey, we have a couple minutes left. Is there anything that you want to say about, I don't know, the state of the society or the conference itself or any of the panels that you're going to be on? The floor is yours. What do you want to talk about? 
I don't know. So I've already told you a lot about what I'm doing. Like I hope people show up for the HFE woman group. I hope they show up for my panels, um, you know, check out these affinity groups, uh, find out what other things are going on. Like I saw there's a lot of different happy hours and you might have to run from one to another, yeah. but you know, any, anytime you can, it's good to meet new people. It's good to network. All of you students take advantage of this. Like these people that you look around that you don't know are going to be the people who are on your future panels when you come back to HFES. So meet, you know, people in your generation and people from another generation. Yeah. That's, that's what I tell people too. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sitting down with us. You're always welcome to come back too. Uh, oh, doors always open. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> thank you so much, Christy. We'll be back right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. I'm sitting here with Rebecca Greer, and we're going to be talking about the UX task force that HFES has been putting together. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me, Nick. We are thrilled to have you, and I personally am super thrilled to be talking to you about this topic. This is something that's near and dear to my heart, and I'm super excited to jump into some of the stuff that you have to share with us today. Can you just maybe start at the top and tell us what is the task force? So the, the Executive Council of uh, Human Factors and Ergonomic Society um, consists of, I'm blanking on the exact number, but um, six uh, at-large members, uh, three folks who served in Treasury, immediate, past, and current, and three presidents, immediate, past, and current. Um, those individuals set the tone for HFES. What are the things that are going to happen? How are we going to operate as a society? All of these things. Um, the president can choose every year to establish task force for issues they think are of importance. The reason I ran for the executive council um, was, and became an at-large member, my term ended on Saturday, uh, was that as a UX practitioner, I felt the society wasn't doing all it could for me. And I wanted to be that voice on the executive council. Um, so... This past year, Chris Reed, who was the president during that last year, uh, established a task force to look at the issues related to uh, UX practitioners and their membership within the society. I sent out a call on LinkedIn. We got a large number of people who were interested in assisting us. 19 folks total helped me to write a report that was a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats and provide recommendations to the executive council to improve HFES for UX practitioners. Then we provided them with 41 recommendations on Saturday. Several of them have been adopted as motions. Um, several of them are being sent to the appropriate committees and divisions within um, HFES to, and hopefully will go forward in the future. That's awesome. And I do remember seeing this post on LinkedIn and having, it was a lot of activity on it. And to me, that is that is very telling because it it sounds like you know you're not the only person that thinks that there's some sort of uh, improvements that can be made with a task force like this. And now I, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, sort of the representation on the team. There's a lot of people. You said 19 people. Yes, were, 19. Were involved we're, I in think this. 19 authors on uh, at the end who actually contributed to the document in some way, shape, or form. Um, I think there were more who had signed up and had attended some meetings, but 19 folks. Helped write. Right. So a lot of a lot of people involved. Can you tell me just a little bit about sort of what the representation was like on, you know, throughout those 19 folks, like what types of domains, industries, roles, uh, you know, uh, cultural backgrounds, that type of thing, like who was on this panel? 
it ran the gamut, really. I mean, um, I'm in Dublin, Ireland, and there was a couple of other folks from across the pond. Um, and a lot, although most of the folks were from the United States. We um, had folks who worked as practitioners in the medical uh, domain. We have students, we had professors, we had folks who worked for um, other large corporations, um, consultants, um, folks who were younger than me, folks that are older than me. Uh, it ran the gamut really in terms of who all was involved in writing the document. That's awesome. I'm I'm really happy to hear that it was diverse uh, <laughs> with with all those different perspectives contributing to it. Because when you say UX practitioner, that that can mean a lot of different things. Like it what, does, and actually, that was one of the first things that we did was to define what we meant by UX practitioner. Um, and we 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 decided that for other purposes what we were going to focus on are those folks who are actually working in product development teams. So making trade-off decisions with marketers, engineers, product managers, designers, um, among others, about either the acquisition or the development of a product. That the folks were working primarily in unregulated industries. So consumer electronics, software, web, those kinds of things versus medical or aviation or automotive. Um, and that their focus was on the perceptual and cognitive mechanisms of the end user, not so much the physical ergonomics of the end user. And we thought that those are the folks who were most likely going to have UX in their title. Right. And did you did you filter it down even further by sort of role within those like researchers or designers or did you include sort of everybody at the table? Um, we pretty much included everybody. Um, I will say that my experience has been that the folks who are have graduated from an HF accredited program, which is most of the people we were, were discussing, those folks who had been HFEF members when they were students and somehow became disenfranchised with the society as practitioners, that most of those folks were probably serving roles as researchers and less so as designers or program managers or engineers. But we didn't say that explicitly in the document. Right. Now, I, I really want to kind of cut to the sort of meat and potatoes of this. Like what, what did you find? Let's, let's get into some of the findings because mm -hmm. you sent me the deck. There's a lot to go over <laughs> just high level. Maybe what are some key takeaways here? Um, I mean, one of the key takeaways is that HFES has been losing membership uh, for the last 10 years or so. Um, and while UX as a career has been growing steadily, um, I think Payscale and CNN in 2017 said it, UX researcher was like the 39th best job to have in the United States. Um, Glassdoor said this year that UX designer was one of the best 50 jobs to have. LinkedIn said in the last couple of years that UX design was one of the best top five skills to have. Um, so you would, we should be increasing membership in HFES, not decreasing membership. Um, in terms of the strengths and weaknesses, uh, opportunities and threats, what we found was that HFES really does do an excellent job for students. It is an amazing society for to build students' potential in their, in their home, their professional home, to give them opportunities uh, to do all sorts of things and connections. And this is why so many people want to stay members of HFES. Is, and that's a real strength that we should be capitalizing on. Another strength is that it is the oldest UX pro uh, professional society in the United States. Um, we have accreditation programs for graduate programs. We have a relationship with BCPE in terms of accreditation, which are things that we have found UX practitioners that don't have a connection to HFES want um, for the profession. And that the history of UX, or the history, excuse me, the history of HFES is a mix of practitioners and academics working together to solve real world problems. Unfortunately, that history hasn't really, that strength of partnership hasn't existed the last few years. And that's one of the weaknesses that we found is that there is at least a perception, if not a reality, that academics are more valued by the society than practitioners, that academics have more knowledge of the inner workings of the society um, and, and of the opportunities that exist uh, beyond just being a member of the society. Um, this is partially due to a complex organizational structure that exists. There are a number, I, I didn't understand the complex organizational structure until I became a member of the EC, uh, the Executive Council. 
Um, and I actually was in a conversation the other day with other members of the executive council that they also didn't understand the complexity of the society until they became, were elected to the executive council. Um, the value for practitioners is low um, in a lot of different ways. HFES doesn't engage with the external world um, as much as practitioners would like to see that happen. Um, and HFES, we all know this, the website and other digital communications don't really meet the standard that UX practitioners are used to. Um, in terms of opportunities, uh, UX is a fast-growing career, as we've talked about. There's an increasing need for HF expertise within human factors. Um, as technology gets more and more complex, artificial intelligence, self-driving vehicles, more and more things. The popularity of STEAM, uh, data science and behavioral science are all reasons we should HFES should be growing um, and things we can capitalize within those. The UN has a behavioral science week. Uh, there is an organization that has a World Usability Day and the UN has signed on in the past to promoting that day. Um, and then that those members from their student days are passionate about HFES and they have broad networks and they could, this is, this is also something HFES could leverage. We also have threats from the external world though, that professional societies don't add as much value to individuals as they once did because of social media. Um, this is a good thing in a lot of ways because we can find other people who are passionate about human factors, UX, not just within our own, within and without being a member of HFES, but it's also a threat in that there is a rise of pseudo profundity um, and that lots of people have said, you Google UX, you go onto LinkedIn, you, and you see UX, Facebook, Reddit, and you are just as likely to get advice that goes against the 50, 100 years of science within human factors as goes with it. And if you aren't knowledgeable about the topic, it's hard for you to figure out what is the good sources and what are the bad sources. Um, in terms of human factor science, UX science. Furthermore, there is a lot of, there are other professional societies uh, related to UX. CHI uh, exists, UXPA exists. They aren't the same as human factors though. And then there's also conferences out there, both for-profit companies have created UX conferences, as well as other nonprofits that don't necessarily have societies associated with them, but one can attend a conference or present at a conference without being a member of a society. So these, this, these uh, were the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats we presented to the executive council. And then we had 41 action items or recommendations for them. These 41 uh, action items fell into the category of better representation of UX at all levels of human factors leadership, uh, awareness of HFES and particularly the professional the degrees of professional standards that are. Um, I love Keith Instone has a great metaphor that he uses where uh, his son became a line cook at a rest at a breakfast diner to pay some for some bills in college. His son never had cooked anything before. The restaurant told him how to cook the 20 breakfast dishes that they had. Um, and now his son can say he's a cook. But his son knows that that cooking skill is not the same as somebody, a chef at a Michelin star restaurant. However, in UX, we all know somebody who has stumbled into UX, does a great job with certain with what they do, but doesn't understand what else can be done um, in with a human factors background. And so, and there's also this big push for democratization of UX and user research. So we need human factors or another entity, at least some entity, to say, no, seriously, there is a science and there are different levels of that science. And just because somebody says, I've done UX for one year or I took a boot camp, that doesn't mean that they are the same as Peter Hancock or Micah Ensley in terms of human factors UX knowledge. Um, some other action items fell into value, um, making the journals, the conferences a little bit more attractive um, and value oriented for practitioners. And then the user friendliness and accessibility. So that complex organizational structure we provided recommendations for making it more easier for UX practitioners to be involved at all levels of leadership within the society. I want to follow up on one of the things that you mentioned. So there's sort of this overall need for someone to come in and say, hey, pay attention to human factors, pay attention to the science. Do you think 
and and this is this is sort of me asking you do you think that's a, a government's role do you think that's some other sort of entity like w- when you talk about an entity some other hand to come in what are you what are we talking about here i think human factors is in a unique position to do that because we do have a relationship with accreditation we have our own accreditation system for graduates programs and human factors and we do have the relationship with uh bcpe certified pro- uh, professional ergonomists or engineers i can't remember the exact title, forgive me. Um, so I think human factor, hu- the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society is in a unique position to do so. And actually, they did take up the recommendation. They are creating a task force to create standardized UX titles with skill sets. Um, potentially, this work could involve UXPA. I, that's still to be negotiated. Um, and that they are going to leverage the fact that ONET does have titles, job titles and job descriptions related to human factors and try and get those descriptions into ONET. Um, and then the hope is that with once they're in ONET, that that will make it easier for companies to say, to reference those descriptions, and then they'll become more standardized throughout industry. It's kind of a chicken and an egg problem in that we need the titles and the descriptions for companies to use them. Um, but Nobody wants to do them unless they know for certain that companies will will use them. So I'm hoping that this task force can create these titles, we can get them out there, and then we can use PR, use others, uh, use strengths, or use our networking, use social media to get them to be standardized within uh, the world. Yeah, it's it's really a, a strange thing when you really start to break it down and be like, yeah, but 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 we want companies to to use these things uh, and therefore will sort of bolster our credibility to say that, you know, we, we know these defined roles, but then how do we define these roles because companies are using them in different ways? It's, it's a very complex problem. And I'm, I'm happy that a task force like this exists trying to look at sort of all the intricacies. Um, and, and I, uh, there was another point that you made earlier that I'm blanking on right now, but um, what are some some of the, uh, maybe I'll get back to it, this stream of consciousness thing. Uh, <laughs> what, what are some of the immediate next steps? Like what what can we do tomorrow, today? What can we do today to, to start making progress towards uh, a more sort of unified domain where both human factors practitioners, UX practitioners, researchers, designers, all feel part of one larger umbrella. So I will say that the Executive Committee Council also voted to enact a digital communications committee. This is a permanent standing organization within um, HFES, and they are going to work with Smith Buckland, who provides all of our administrative uh, services, to ensure that all of our digital communications, be they LinkedIn, the website, our emails, go forward, meet uh, UX best practices, or or at least the best that they can do given financial considerations and timeline constraints. This committee, the task force that I mentioned, there's also a practitioner uh, committee within HFES, and there is a membership committee within HFES. I strongly encourage anyone who is in UX or a practitioner to reach out to the executive council um, or Steve Kemp, the executive director who works for Smith Buckland, Carolyn Summerick, Chris Reed, Susan Katowski, the newly elected president, you can reach out to me and I'll put you in touch with the right folks to get on to these volunteers, to volunteer your time for these committees, these task forces. Only with your voice in there, in that room, are we going to be able to make a society that is beneficial to human, uh, to UX practitioners. Now, this isn't your problem to solve, but one sort of, I guess, critique of that approach of reach out to us. We're here. It's an open invitation. I've heard that maybe HFES should sort of be the proactive force in that equation where they're actually going out and sort of promoting these types of things within you know existing technology companies out there today or other organizations. Do you have any thoughts on that and how specifically its role with respect to sort of UX practitioners? um, You know, is there any other way that HFES can be that proactive force to sort of get out there and get folks involved? Um, So I am hoping um, that with um, 
this task force that is going to kind of create as people learn about it, as we get it off the ground, as it moves forward, then there'll be more attention given to human factors in ergonomic society for the creation of these roles. Until that day happens, I agree with you that HFES needs to be much more transparent. Use LinkedIn, use Reddit, use um, other communication methods, not just the bulletin, email, and connect to say, hey, we have these volunteer opportunities. Um, it is my understanding that they are working on that. Um, I, I wish they would do it a little bit more. I, I <laughs> They have heard me say this many times. Um, I used LinkedIn, a LinkedIn message to get the members from my task force. Ever, uh, so I hope that that model and the, the strength of the report we put together, the passion of the members of that task force that they, you, that HFES leadership recognizes that. Um, and <clears throat> I hope that that just continues and snowballs and that we continue to do that. I will say it will be immensely helpful for that to, uh, to snowball if, um, if people actually do respond. So I, 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 I can't ask the HFES leadership <laughs> to reach out and then if there's crickets, nothing's going to change. So right. it'll help if both sides work together to create that handshake, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I, I almost wonder, and maybe this is uh, sort of me shouting to the rooftops um, to HFES leadership. Maybe I'll bring it up to some of them this week. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> like, what what if, as part of your role with within HFES as an EC member or even somebody on a task force like this one, what if part of that role and responsibility is to represent that in a public manner for some portion of the week, respond to one or two Reddit posts with your name, you know, that, mm -hmm. uh, that people know, uh, people can start seeing your name and understanding where you're coming from. Part of that would be to promote HFES and what we do, right? Could that be sort of, uh, included in roles and responsibilities to have more of a public presence and sort of encourage, go reach out to these communities and make that part of the role, right? I'm not telling you to, to answer for me now, but <laughs> that that might be some sort of way in which that outreach that, mm -hmm. that a lot of people sort of feel unheard or feel like they don't want to do the work that would show that HFES is going out and doing the work. I don't know, maybe. No, um, I think it's a, I mean, I, we <laughs> did put in our recommendations that there be a way, a, some sort of way of starting discussions on all sorts of social media platforms, at least quarterly, um, you know, put something thought provoking out there. CIEA, uh, I always get the acronym wrong, CIEHF, uh, which is the British version of Human Factors and Ergonomic <laughs> Society, has put out some great infographics and videos in the last couple of months um, that are thought provoking and are widely shared. I reposted it and I've gotten a lot of attention on my LinkedIn site for sharing that. So if we can get that content, um, so it is something I will tell uh, Barbara Shapiro, who is the new chair for that digital communications committee. Perhaps that's something that they can take on. There is an outreach committee or outreach division, again, the complex organizational structure. Um, I can, I will definitely put a bug in the ear of the individual who leads that. Um, we hired a PR firm. Um, I don't think that they would, be that, but we did talk about the fact that we need a cadre of experts so that when that PR firm is asked to respond or thinks that there's something that human factors should respond to um, and get that out in the news cycle quickly, that we have the experts um, not on call, but basically that that instead of them calling Carolyn Summerick, the new president at midnight and her having to think off the top of her head who might be somebody mm -hmm. to respond to, that they can go to a call sheet and go, oh, okay, they can talk to this person. Um, and so that could be, you know, one of those responsibilities is that there's a PR committee um, and not only are they experts on call for the PR organization, but they go, they do have to respond to one post a month on, on Reddit or LinkedIn or Discord or you name the social media platform. Right. I do want to make some, one, one more comment here, which is, so you, you mentioned that, you know, HFES, you got to be a member to present here. Uh, and membership is a large commitment for a lot of people, especially if they don't have support from their organization for professional dues or anything like that. Mm -hmm. 
can you talk a little bit about maybe some recommendations for um, maybe reducing that membership fee or providing an easier uh, outlet for folks to get involved? Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a complex topic, and we did have recommendations around the reducing the cost. So, um, if you volunteered a certain number of hours for the for the society, reducing your membership fee. If you reduce, um, I know that Farzan and Ron Boring, who are the chairs of the conference, have discussed if you, and we recommended that if you volunteer for the conference in some capacity, that a certain number of hours that you get a, a free conference attendance. Um, we had a recommendation of, hey, since we're losing members, if people were able to get somebody to sign up for a membership, maybe, you know, or three people to sign up for membership, maybe they get a reduction in their membership fee. Um, these were lower on our list of recommendations. Uh, we all voted um, and they ended up falling, not, not at the bottom, but in the mid range of recommendations, we had higher ones. So I didn't push them too hard to the executive council, um, though there has been talk on the area. Finances are tricky. Um, and there is work being done to look at what are the cost benefits of, of certain things in terms of um, if we if we reduce membership this much, if we, you know, or what does it take to be able to say we can reduce membership? For those of you who may be in having troubles because of the layoffs that have happened because of COVID, various things, HFES does have a program. It's on the membership site where you can apply for a reduced um, membership uh, fee for the year. Um, so that does exist um, for folks. Um, it's tricky. <laughs> I will say one of the th one of the recommendations that we did to, uh, put forward was a, a freemium model for because unfortunately a lot of HFES has a lot of amazing content, but it's behind the paywall. So to get to the journals, EID, even a lot of the stuff on the website, webinars, you do have to pay. Um, I think that Barb Shapiro and the Digital uh, Communications Committee is going to definitely look into a model of what can we provide for free that will entice people to become more members um, or to attend the conference. And as we increase the number of people who attend the conference, increase the number of people who are members, the more we can give back uh, to members. So, yeah, it is. Yeah. Another chicken and egg problem, right? How do you, <laughs> how do you provide value for members? Well, <laughs> how do you get more members to sign up to see that value? And it's, it's a big complex, yeah. Uh, that's the reason why we have tasks for task forces, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, if there was um, one message that you would want to let everybody listening, watching live know about uh, with respect to this task force, what's like the one thing you'd want people to leave this conversation knowing? Ooh, that is a good question. I was asked in the EC after I presented the 41, like, what are the four things you want, motions you want on the floor? And I was like, ah, I can't pick. And now you're asking me for the one. Um, <laughs> They're all my um, children. I love them all. <laughs> yeah. Um, I asked all of the members of the, the task force to go through and rank the recommendations and stuff like this. And I, I did it first because I wanted, you know, and I had such a hard time of, of going and not labeling them all as priority one. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I really do. If you, if you have nostalgia for HFES, if you're a member now and are on the fence about continuing, then I'm asking you to put in a few hours a month um, into a, a volunteer activity to at least, or if you can't do that for whatever reason, I'm a busy mom, I, I live in Dublin, it's hard, I get it. Um, write emails to the executive council and tell them the things that you're struggling with or the things that you need that you think HFES should be doing in the world. It would be even better if you say, these are the things that I think should be done and I'm willing to help. Um, because the way we get the society we want is by participating in that society as active members. And so um, I know that there are struggles and there are challenges associated with presenting at the, at the conference as a practitioner. Um, there's a lot of legalities. So I'm not, so volunteer to be on the conference committee and work with the conference organization staff to figure out and, and volunteers to figure out how do we 
create a system that meets, that is more flexible for those in that situation? Um, how do we create more webinars? How do we create more content that is going to change things? Chris Reed um, also has started an industrial uh, industry ad advisory board committee. Um, and their goal is to get uh, representatives from large corporations that have human factors and UX practitioners to be advising HFES in terms of, and getting those organizations to contribute to HFES, uh, just as a large number of corporations contribute to CHI um, and to UXPA as in various ways. So help Chris, uh, help Barb with the digital communications, um, write emails with ideas, say it's important, and that's how it's gonna get raised up. Well, thank you, Rebecca. I, I have, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I'm super thrilled that you were able to sit down with me and talk about this task force, even though you're not here in person. Really wish you could be. Um, I do maybe <laughs> what, what would be uh, one thing for you to tell people who are here in person or those who want to be in person? What is your favorite thing about being at HFES in person? Oh, all of the hallway, uh, all of the hallway conversations are my favorite part. Um, go to the fellows, uh, posters with fellows, chat with all of the fellows, learn about them and their careers, um, ask them questions about what they do outside of human factors um, and, and form relationships and networking that way. They're all great people. Go to the annual business meeting um, and that is where you will see the executive council and the division chairs and you can push to get UX and that's how you can start the relationship to get more involved um, as well. So those are going to be two things, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's okay. Uh, we always do more than one thing in our one more thing. <laughs> that's totally fine. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, one more question for you. Where can our listeners find you or uh, uh, sort of contact HFES if they want to get involved with something like this? Um, so I am on LinkedIn. Um, I think I'm the only Rebecca Greer, at least the only Rebecca Greer with UX. Um, and I'm on Twitter, um, though not as frequently. Um, and then um, um, you can find contact information for the executive council members on the HFES website. Excellent. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors Practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.